We apologize for our absence yesterday. It turns out we had a unrecoverable, in many ways, technical issue that we could not get anything published. Although there were good conversations that we had in our recording, which we have tried to salvage and bring back today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston, but you will also hear from Courtney Astafi because she was part of the recording yesterday. Hopefully, we will not have a repeat of that, and bear with us. There's a few sound quality issues you might hear in this, but we think it'll work out. Laura, Laura and Lisa, you ready to go? We are. Let's do it. Let's hope we don't have technical issues today. Perhaps the most surprising Ohioan to participate in the insurrection and attempted coup on January 6th in Washington, D.C., was a therapist for the Cleveland Public Schools. Lisa, has she finally accepted responsibility for what she did? We all remember the photo of her in the chamber. Yes, a very recognizable photo. And actually, that's what led to her being uh, arrested and charged. 50-year-old Christine Priola, who is a former occupational therapist for the Cleveland School District, pled guilty Tuesday in federal court for her role in the January 6th insurrection. She faces a possible 15 to 21 months in prison and $2,000 in restitution for property damage to the Capitol. Her sentencing will come in Washington, D.C. federal court on October 28th. But she uh, she took a charter bus from Willoughby, and she was among those who stormed the Capitol and one is one of the first to be ID'd and charged. She was charged eight days later. She was clearly recognizable in a photo that was taken by a Getty Images photographer in the Senate chamber. She was holding a, a, a sign, and she was talking with somebody who is actually sitting in the in the 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 speaker's seat. Um, so prosecutors say that Priola was on the front lines of a group that entered the east wing of the Capitol and urged on the crowd. They searched her home in Willoughby on the 7th of January, and they found the sign that was in the photo, also the clothing that she wore that day. They seized two computers, a laptop, and a thumb drive, and she resigned her job. She had been with the Cleveland schools as an OT since 2000, but she resigned her job in the day after the attack, and her resignation letter was full of conspiracy theories. Yeah, I, I still have a hard time with this. Most of the people that were in the insurrection you look at, and they're pretty much Fruit Loops. They're nuts. They, they got caught up in the silliness of the stolen election. And when you looked at their backgrounds, it was more explainable. But when you look at somebody like her, I mean, a longtime Cleveland Public Schools employee with a huge responsibility for helping the children of Cleveland. And then she does that. Well, but if you, you know, I didn't get to see the full text of her letter, but she was talking about anti-vax. I mean, so she obviously had gone down the rabbit hole at some point. I know, but it's scary that that's a person that was influencing the minds of children. Mm -hmm. it's, it just seems like we should have a a higher level of, of responsibility with Cleveland school kids. It was nice that she resigned right away and the school district didn't have to go about firing her. We've never talked to her. We, we have reached out a few times and probably after her sentencing, we'll give it another shot. It's today in Ohio. What ingenious tactic did the new president of Tri-C use to get a read on whether the college would be a good fit for his values before he accepted the job? Courtney, this is one delightful story. Yeah, this is kind of really cute to see his thought process here. So Michael Bastone, he is the new 
president for Tri-C. And before he got the job offer, after he applied earlier this year, he and his wife just kind of slid into Cleveland under the radar to check it out on their own, kind of organically, get a feel for the city, see if it was a good fit for them. It sounds like Bastone, you know, has been in New York his whole life and career. So this was a big change. And, you know, basically what what, what they did was they kind of went undercover as fake parents at Tri-C. Um, they, you know, put on some sweatsuits and, and just tried to go in there and talk to folks as if they were interested parents. They met up with admissions. They walked around the campus. They just talked to parents and, and students to get a feel for Tri-C. And they also went into some local restaurants and got people's impressions of Tri-C there. Yeah, and they, they went the full parent route. They said they dressed in like sweatpants and and jeans and were just inquisitive about how their child would be as a fit in there. It was just a fascinating way to get an honest to goodness read on your your prospective employer. I think we'd all love to be able to do something like that before you take a job. You want to know if the culture will fit you. And and he did. And the good news is he loved it. What was the uh, the final moment that he knew this was the place for him? Yeah, this was really cute. They were out at a restaurant, I be- perhaps Cracker Barrel or Perkins. And and um, the, their server, they were talking to their server about the visit. And at the end of that little interaction, she had asked them if if they'd like her to pray for them. And and that was really touching for them. They, they thought that was really kind. And I assume demonstrating kind of the kindness that, that Clevelanders have a reputation for. And and this is what Bastone said about that moment. When that happened, that opened our hearts. And it, it was really, you know, it, we, we could make a life here. Can I add something in here? I'm yeah, reading the story and it was delightful. But they're like, we wanted to get a taste of the local restaurants. So we went to Perkins and Cracker <laughs> Barrel. And I'm thinking, I feel like Cleveland's pretty well known as a foodie town. And like you think about all the restaurants you write about and all the ones that have been on, you know, Food Network shows and everything. And I want to be like, I feel like we could make some better recommendations for you of, of it, you know, only in Cleveland kind of food. So when they move here, I hope someone gives them like, you know, a, a link to Cleveland.com with all of our restaurant covers. I suspect that they went into those restaurants because of the people who would be dining there, that they wanted to get to know basic Cleveland. You know, a lot of people can't afford to eat at the, the restaurants that you're talking about. And so they're when they go out for dinner, it's to a Perkins or something like that. And I think they were looking for that. It's a very creative approach. If this is the approach he's going to bring to running Tri-C, I'm looking for some great things. Because I, when we first heard about this, this was reported in some education newsletter uh, that very few people see. What a great idea. I already love this guy. Let's see what happens once he gets here. It's Today in Ohio. It turns out that the Cleveland Clinic's well-known failure to give back to the community where it is headquartered is not the reason it slipped in the new ratings from U.S. News & World Report. Laura, what was the reason? I mean, we don't know exactly why, except that they didn't really slip. It's not like their care went down or their number of points went down from the U.S. News & World Report rankings. It's just that other people did better. Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles and NYU Langone Hospitals 
earn more points this year than they had in in previous years. So Cedar Sinai went from 379 to 430. NYU went from 360 to 425. So it, it's kind of tough because no one's going to point a finger and say the clinic's not as good as it used to be. And they're definitely not saying that. They're just saying these other two hospitals surpassed the clinic in their programs and points this year. Although the clin- they did lose points in right. certain categories and some yes. by by a lot. Right. They dropped from 7th to 14th for orthopedics. They dropped one spot in a couple of categories, including gastroenterology, uh, GI surgery, uh, OBGYN, and from 5th to 6th in cancer and pulmonary slash lung surgery. So they did drop there. And the thing is, these are all PR mavens. Nobody is going to say anything bad about the clinic or why they didn't rank as high. All right. But let's face it. Everybody puts a lot of stock in these. The hospitals all go for this. So when they rise, they thump their chests and say, we're the best, we're the best. So when they fall, you got to pay attention to it. You can't say, well, the rankings don't really matter. We're still a good hospital. Well, then when you rise, don't get in our face about how great you are, because if you get the one, you get the other. For the Ohio-Michigan thing, I think people will take some some solace in the fact that the University of Michigan hospital had the biggest drop of any hospital in the rankings. <laughs> but what is this NYU Langone system that we've never heard of that now tops the Cleveland Clinic? Well, so they are one of the country's top academic medical centers. Like it sounds, they are affiliated with New York University and they have facilities throughout the New York City area uh, with hospitals in Manhattan, Long Island, and Brooklyn. They serve about 1.8 million patients annually, have more than 45,000 employees, and They ranked in six separate specialties, including topping all hospitals for neurology and neurosurgery after ranking fifth in 2021. So it sounds like they really jumped up. They were ranked third for both geriatrics and neurology, fourth for orthopedics and pulmonary, and fifth for cardiology and gastroenterology. You do wonder, because you don't usually see this kind of rapid advancement in these rankings, whether they have somehow figured a way to cook the books and that a year or two from now, we're going to see a story that's scandalous about how they learned to play the system. Rich Exner said that he was noticing just how rapidly in the past few years they've completely turned themselves around. And maybe they have a change agent running it that really has made a difference. But it's it's odd that one of the top three now is one one that none of us had ever really heard of. Right. Like New York Presbyterian, which is better known and it's associated with Columbia and Cornell, that is seven now. And that was the New York hospital I would have been thinking of. Johns Hopkins in Baltimore um, down, dropped one spot, I believe. UCLA is on this list and Northwestern and Chicago. So, I mean, there are a lot of, of hospitals that you have heard of. But, you know, we talked about this yesterday. They rank 30 different things. So, I don't know exactly where the clinic is losing to all of, you know, losing steam compared to these others. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Even though Intel is clearing homes and other buildings from the site where it plans a massive microchip factory outside Columbus, the the bulk of the project still seems to hinge on Congress providing subsidies. Lisa, did we finally get some movement on this controversial bill? Finally. And, uh, you know, Intel was kind of holding their feet to the fire on this one. So the U.S. Senate voted 64 to 32 to advance that $280 billion CHIPS Act bill that would help subsidize the Intel plant in New Albany, Ohio. Final approval in the Senate is expected this week, and also the House is supposed to take it up as well. So this bill, as you recall is uh, 
includes $52 billion in grants and incentives for the semiconductor industry. A 25% tax break uh, would equal about $24 billion over 10 years. And then there's $200 billion in this act for scientific research funding. The Congressional Budget Office says that the CHIPS Act would increase deficits by $79 billion over 10 years. And that was a point of controversy. And and this controversy crossed the aisle because Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont, joined the opposition. He says, let's get our priorities straight. We have, you know, homeless people and other problems. And why are we subsidizing a huge, expensive company? But then there are others who say, we really need to reshore the semiconductor industry. And we certainly in Ohio want that to happen. Uh, The GOP is split on the pros and cons. So this really, you know, was a bill, you'd think that it would be unanimous. I'm surprised there's opposition at all. But Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate and 17 GOP senators voted to advance it to limit debate on it. So, and as you recall, we talked about this in the podcast a couple weeks ago, Intel recently delayed their ceremonial groundbreaking for their plant in New Albany because they wanted to push the case for passage of the CHIPS Act. So it looks like it's happening. Although we did run a story from the Denison University journalism program Saturday that shows they are clearing out the houses down there to get ready for it. So things are moving ahead. Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting story the, uh, of the woman who lived across the street and she watched the cornfields disappear and, and her neighbor's homes disappear. But, you know. Yeah, I was talking to Alan Miller, the former editor of the Columbus Dispatch, who's at Denison University. He was taught there for decades and now is full-time. And he said, hey, you might want to check out this site because what we published there you can use. Just, you know, give the students some credit. Alan's name was on it, too. But we saw that story. We said, whoa, this is a great story. We'll be happy to serve this one up. So hopefully we'll we'll see some more. It's a tough debate, though. You You say you're surprised it wasn't unanimous. It's national security versus corporate charity. Right. We all know that there's a shortage of cars right now, even though Laura got hers yesterday, that because there's not enough microchips, microchips are in everything. And if you don't have some control in your own country of them, it puts you at a disadvantage. So you can make a very strong argument that in the interest of national security, in the interest of the economy, we desperately need this chip factory, whether it's in Ohio or somewhere else. And Intel is saying we need some subsidies to reshore this. It's good to see it happening. It'll be a great boon for the Ohio economy. It's Today in Ohio. One of Cleveland's newest city council members has figured out what the veterans all know well, and she is not happy about it. Courtney, what is Rebecca Morris' complaint about the city administration and how it is impeding what she wants to do and really what she's supposed to do? Yeah, six, seven months now into office, Rebecca Moore is finding that all the calls that council members routinely receive is just taken up too much of her time, at least in Ward 12. She represents, you know, the Slavic Village area and a few neighboring neighborhoods. And basically, the the councilwoman put together this 20-page analysis kind of breaking down how many calls her office receives and and how many would be better suited to go to the administration. You know, she found that 91% of the calls really have nothing to do with council. And basically what she's saying is this, this, this overwhelming number of calls means that council members don't really have time to dive in and, and help improve their wards. 
And she also found, I think importantly here, that it's just not enough time to craft legislation and and really dig into policy and, and serve that legislative role that they're there for in part. But, you know, city council forever and ever, you know, I've always been told that constituent services is a, is a city council bread and butter function and that city council is pretty unique in this in this category, their historic role in being on the ground, working with residents. I mean, but but Councilman Moore, Councilwoman Moore points out that that a lot of this stuff is just basic city service needs that residents are calling council members for. Hey, my trash can's cracked. I can't get a new one. My request has gone unanswered for months. Can you help me get a new one? Or what's going on with the vacant lot next next door that needs mowed? And and she argues that those things need to be tackled by the city, the city departments that actually handles those issues. We know that some city council members for years carried lawnmowers in their trunks to mow weedy vacant lots themselves rather than wait for City Hall to get to it. But that's not what the government design is. Council members aren't supposed to provide basic services. They only do it because City Hall fails so miserably to provide the services. You know, it's fascinating that Marr is bringing this up now because we're seeing the county council descend into city council-style government with their creation of $66 million in slush funds that they can each spend any way they want. The design is supposed to be that the council is a board of directors. It sets policies and it sets budgets. Then the executive branch, the mayor or the county executive, carries out the policies and oversees the spending on the services. No one ever envisioned members mowing lots or getting trash cans replaced. Mars absolutely right. I was stunned by Council President Blaine Griffin's response to this. Yeah, Council President Griffin, you know, when I was talking to him, he, he described himself as old school. He, he said, yeah, sure, all of us council members want that low-hanging fruit to be taken care of by the administration as it should be. He didn't, he, he thinks that too, right? But then at some point, as we get into the more nitty-gritty things that require maybe a little bit more coordination, less basic things, he thinks, you know, that should be left to council people to intervene. Um, he said, you know, residents trust council members to get things done. He, he thinks that even if changes were made, those calls would still inevitably end up in the lap of council members. And, you know, he basically said every council member kind of works out their own balance here. You know, maybe Mara wants more time to focus on policy. Maybe other council members are just all about constituent services. He said this should be kind of meted out and determined on a member by member basis. I was surprised to read in your story that the mayor's longtime action line, that hotline that people have called, I think going back to at least Michael R. White's term, was shut down. So Justin Bibb has closed down the mayor's action line. What's the thinking there? Yeah. And so this is interesting. You know, this has come up a handful of times in public council hearings. This this happened towards the beginning of his term, I think, on the heels of the, the snowplow issue. But there was no ever formal like rollout from city hall saying the action line's done it's all going through 311 i think it's part of bibb's plans to kind of streamline these communication issues and and it sounds like it's working towards this idea that mars getting in but mar also in her report kind of points out that a lack of communication about that switch might be contributing to these issues yeah if, if you call the old action line 
it's my understanding it routes to the 311 call taker. So I don't know if if individual residents are feeling a change there, but this is something that's kind of squishy and, and and not much communication formally has gone out about it. But that's a pretty big deal. Closing down the action line, he should have announced that. There should have been, hey, folks, I told you I'm going to reform City Hall. I don't think the action line is the way to go. We have a 311 line. We really want to drum that into people's heads starting today. It was nothing. Until I read that deep in your story, it's like, wait, wait, the action line's gone? I mean, I, that, that's a huge fumble. I think Mara is right. I, Rebecca Mara, everything that she said in that story, I thought you're right on the money, but she is fighting against the tidal wave including in the council president. Good stuff, Courtney. It's today in Ohio. Why was Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who did everything he could to thwart Ohio voters and draw fair legislative and congressional voting districts, chosen as someone who should bring credibility to elections in Nigeria? Laura, I don't get it. He has completely abandoned his oath to uphold the Constitution of Ohio in not drawing maps. Why is he the credible guy in Nigeria? I get, they probably don't know a lot about gerrymandering in Nigeria. <laughs> it's probably not their biggest concern. And the idea is the the fair elections and not necessarily the districts that get you there. So he was in this in Nigeria from July 14th through the 22nd as the lead delegate in this group of elections observers funded by USAID, which is a federal agency that promotes democracy in foreign countries. So basically, this was a trial run of their new elections reform put in place in advance of this highly anticipated presidential election in February of 2023. So LaRose met with candidates, elections officials, diplomats, and reporters, and they produced a report making recommendations for the election, including reallocating polling places to limit crowding and long lines. Yeah, I'm still just not buying why Frank LaRose is seen as the credible elections guy anywhere, because... He's violated his oath to uphold the Constitution. This is apples to oranges. I mean, uh, look at the 2020 election. The country shut down about two days before that election in March, and he really pulled it through. I mean, and there was no question about the integrity of that election, despite the mail-in ballots and and the whole situation. So, yeah, you can talk about redistricting. Everybody on that commission failed in their duty to do that, except the Democrats who were, you know, fighting upstream. But yeah, I think the redistricting and election integrity are kind of two different things in this case. I do. I did have this conversation with Seth Richardson, our political reporter yesterday, about Frank LaRose kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth here, where he's always said, you know, our elections in Ohio are safe. You can't hack into the system. If you think about that Lake County commissioner case and, you know, the integrity of the election is paramount, but then he's sometimes mirrored some of the Trump talking points. So he said, you know, America is still viewed by a lot of places in the world as a gold standard in how to run elections. He actually went to Ukraine a couple of years back, LaRose did for the same purpose. So he's trying to preserve that. And apparently we still have credibility there, which I I mean, good for us. (laughs) And I hope the Nigerian election goes smoothly. Why is the news of a new subpoena for First Energy Corporation a dire sign for the utility that paid for the biggest corruption case in Ohio history? Lisa, HB6 is going to continue to dog this utility for a long time. 
And I think that the other shoe might be dropping in the near future here. The Securities and Exchange Commission sent a subpoena to First Energy back on July 11th, but it wasn't disclosed until a regulatory filing by First Energy on Tuesday evening. No details on what the subpoena contains, but they did say, quote, it's probable that First Energy will incur a loss in connection with the HB6 investigation. So the SEC probe began in 2020 with information from a whistleblower. This is kind of an offshoot of the federal criminal investigation of the House Bill 6 bribery scandal. And of course, uh, as we've reported here, there was a deferred prosecution deal last year, or corporate plea agreement, that made a, that uh, issued a $230 million fine, and, and then it first energy admitted to bribing, bribing PUCO chair Sam Randazzo, who still has not been charged yet. Also, uh, the outgoing uh, first energy executives, Chuck Jones, can't think of the other guy's name, they haven't been charged yet either. So this Wednesday earning call did say that, you know, there's a Fitch report and that this report praised the steps that First Energy has taken to improve their management culture in the wake of HB6. And apparently they're selling partial ownership, uh, First Energy is. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, the the telling thing was we got a subpoena and we're probably going to lose money because of it. So it's almost like they're saying we did some other stuff that was wrong and they're now on to us. So we're going to get fined for that, too. It's like you if you get if you get this subpoena and immediately conclude this is going to cost us money, you know, there's wrongdoing involved (laughs) and you've been hiding it up to now. And, you know, we have unindicted co-conspirators, allegedly. So, yeah, I think that there will be some more revelations to come out of this. Well, and, you know, I was talking to uh, uh, one of our editors about the, the HB6 investigation, and he pointed out the big householder raid was two years ago about now. And then a year ago, the Justice Department dropped another set of bombshells So if they keep this pattern up, we might be expecting some kind of court filing this month that that finally sheds more light on where this investigation is going. It is moving at a snail's pace. It's there's so much evidence that we already know about. And you're sitting back going, what what's going on? Why haven't you indicted these guys? You've got them dead to rights and you got First Energy admitting the whole thing. Uh, You wonder when we'll see some movement. It's today in Ohio. What does Ohio law let people do if they see a dog inside a car on a hot day? Laura, this is one of those stories that people read in big numbers because everybody worries about a dog in a hot car. Nobody wants to see one suffer. Absolutely. So in Ohio, it's one of the states where breaking into a car is legal to help save an animal. It's right there in the Ohio Revised Code. So you can do it. But I mean, I don't really know how I would break a window. And so the best way to deal with it is probably to call 911 immediately. That's what animal activists tell you to do because it takes only minutes for a pet to face death. On a 78-degree day, which obviously is not that hot, you can get a temperature inside a parked car to 160 degrees, even with the windows cracked. And even if you want to park in the shade, that does not necessarily protect your pet. Yeah, it was interesting that in some states it's completely not allowed. So if you see a dog perishing in a hot car, you have to let it perish, which seems... I guess you can always call the police every time you see something that looks 
yeah, know, but worrisome. But the yes. story pointed out though that the temperature goes up very quickly, and a dog can die in a matter of minutes. And so, right. if, if you're in a more remote area. It's going to take the police too long to get there. Get there yeah. yeah. The National Weather Service says it takes 15 minutes for an animal to die from heat stroke. And according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, hundreds of dogs die every year in overheated cars. So Alexis Oatman did this story. And I mean, it's interesting. And people did read it in droves. It's on the, the front page of the Plain Dealer today with the world's cutest dog in a, in a window. Um, that it is, this is something nobody <laughs> You're wants to You're just saying see. that because it's a golden retriever does, and you and I have golden retrievers? It is not my dog, though. <laughs> because, right. you know, we've all, we've all thought, like, is it safe, you know, for this length of time? Just don't do it. Keep your dog at home. Yeah, and cracking the window does not help. The heat starts. Like anybody that has been in a car, when you turn the engine off in the sun, knows how quickly it gets uncomfortable. Uh, and really, it's just a bad idea to leave a dog in a car. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland's Civilian Police Review Board has recommended a harsh punishment for a detective caught lying and using excessive force. Laura, what are the details and what happens next? And how is this guy still a police officer? That's a very good question, but he's still an active police officer. His name is Detective Jeffrey Yazincheck. He's been accused of using excessive force and lying, retaliating twice. So during a July hearing, the a citizen review board unanimously substantiated eight allegations that he did according to during this violent arrest of William Ellis in 2019. And then his efforts to legally justify a raid on Ellis's home 14 months later, case uh, charges were dropped in both cases because basically judges deemed the police actions unlawful and the review board, when they substantiated those allegations, they're bad enough that, the findings could include termination. And because of the lying and the intentionality of it, the review commission says that this is an aggravating factor in meeting out the discipline. So this is not done yet, obviously. The police chief gets to weigh in on the board's recommendations now. And this is one of the last cases that's going to work this way, where the chief gets the last say because of issue 24 that voters passed last year. Now citizens are going to have a lot more control. The, the frightening thing here is this officer used the power of his badge to try and lock somebody up, breaking all the rules. I mean, that violation of the public trust should never be allowed to happen again. How will he ever have credibility in a courtroom in, in, in testifying against somebody he arrested? Every defense attorney that goes up against him will, will say, how can we trust you? You're a proven liar. You are proven to have abused the power of your badge to persecute somebody. Absolutely. I want to go through these cases because they are jaw-dropping. So the first one is 2019. Yasinchek stopped Ellis. He claimed to observe a transaction that looked like a drug deal. But even though the review board said there was no reason to make this stop. So he, he the, the detective, Yasinchek, claimed that Ellis knocked him to the ground. But body camera video actually reveals that Yasinchek was the aggressor. And then he hunted through Ellis's underpants. And that it was an un constitutional un unauthorized strip search. So the Cuyahoga County prosecutors eventually dropped charges on because of all the problems with that vehicle stop. And then Yasinchek filed an affidavit with a different judge on the same day to get a search warrant for Ellis's home. And that raid led to a gun and there were charges from there. Ellis was ended up being released after spending 15 months in jail. Think about that. More than a year in jail because of these police officers' actions, which were completely unlawful. 
Yeah, I, I just don't. It, well, this would be a great comparison because if they don't fire him, if they allow mm-hmm. him to continue on the job, it'll just add fuel to the fire to get the new commission going. Because I think regular people looking at this would say, no way, you are not fit to represent Cleveland as a police officer. So yeah. it's a frightening story, but very well put together. Uh, John Tucker put all the perspective of the the two commissions and how this is evolving together in a way that that helps you understand why this is so important and what the timeline seems to be what's taking so long with the new community police commission they're still putting the members on the board and their manual has to be approved by the u.s district judge solomon oliver who's overseeing the consent decree which is you know with the u.s justice department okay good stuff check it out on cleveland.com It's Today in Ohio. That does it for a Thursday discussion. Come back Friday. We'll wrap up the week of news. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks to the distant Layla. And thank you for listening. 